Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. U.S.-China relations have been strained in recent years over issues like trade, intellectual property theft, and supply chain reliance. How should we think about the economic ties between the U.S. and China, and what are the keys to a prudent China policy going forward? To answer those questions, I'm joined by Derek Scissors. Derek is a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on the Chinese and Indian economies and on U.S. economic relations with Asia. He is concurrently the chief economist of the China Beige Book. Derek is also the author of AEI's China Global Investment Tracker. Derek, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, people may have forgotten about it, but people used to talk about it a lot. There used to be this trade deal between the United States and China. I'm sure you spent a lot of time analyzing it. The media spent a lot of time covering it. The president liked to talk about it, perhaps far beyond the point where he should have been talking about it. What is the status of the big U.S.-China trade deal? Well, it's expired because it was only supposed to be for two years, and then we were going to negotiate a phase two, which we did not That was do. phase one. That was phase one. It was called phase one. We would always call phase one instead of the trade deal because there was going to be a phase two. Um, so phase one has expired, and there's no phase two. Uh, phase one expired with China falling fall short, well short on all of its promises. No, no surprise. Um, the trade promises, the, the export, U.S. exports to China promises that President Trump emphasized, um, the IP promises, intellectual property promises that some people like me emphasized, they fell short on all of them. Um, you could say, well... That's just, was that just the pandemic? Well, two parts of this. You could say, well, 2021, it was because Trump lost and Biden won, and so that's why the Chinese dropped the trade deal. Well, the Biden administration didn't abandon the trade deal. They insisted the trade deal was still in place. So that's not by itself an explanation. What happened in 2020 is the pandemic meant the Chinese were never going to meet any of their targets. And President Trump pretended otherwise for a long time, which meant people like me had to say, okay, how are we doing? How are we doing when we were not ever going to get there? Um, the, the pandemic broke out several weeks before they signed the trade deal. And even uh, some of President Trump's own advisors said the trade deal is not going to work early on. And we just kind of stuck with it. So it's finally dead because it expired. It kind of was dead when it was signed. Uh, I've heard some people, they don't even like to call it a trade, though. They call it an ag deal. Is it, was it basically just an agricultural deal that China would buy more of agricultural products? How much was that? How important was the other stuff that you just mentioned also, this intellectual property, so they would steal all our intellectual property? And so forth. so I, I think... Politically, ag was the most important thing. I don't understand that. You know, I, I when the Trump administration was still in, in office, I told them, like, you're going to win all the ag states anyway. Why are you trying to make this an ag deal? But there were agricultural export quotas that, if they had been met, would have helped the U.S. farm industry. They were not going to be met, but if they had been. There were other export quotas. There were quotas in manufacturing. There were quotas in energy. So it wasn't just ag, um, as well as the, the non-trade issues, as I'm as we discussed, like IP, ag was the political driver of the deal. Um, unfortunately, ag, like everything else, fell short. If we took a step back and we just viewed China strategically, geopolitically, and began to analyze the crucial 
areas of tension and conflict, how, how high up would be agriculture? Well, agriculture is usually a source of cooperation because the Chinese are unavoidably short of ag- in agricultural production, not of every product, but of, right. but of key products like soybeans. And we're the biggest surplus agricultural producer in the world and the biggest exporter. There are other countries that specialize in certain areas very well. But across the range of commodities, we're number one. They're the number one buyer. We're the number one seller. So the way it becomes a problem is if China tries to use uh, U.S. farmers' desire to sell to China as a political weapon, which they did when when President Trump first imposed tariffs. They said, well, we're going to respond in agriculture because we know that's going to hurt you the most. In normal times, it's a positive for the relationship. It's, obvi- it's a very sensitive political issue. It doesn't really matter to our trade balance. It's a very sensitive political issue when someone starts threatening it. If you had been you know, a member of the Trump administration then or Biden administration now, should they, how should they look at China? I, I, not, to, not to harp on agriculture, but would you look at China as a, as a primarily as a country that should be buying more agricultural products, or is this emerging techno-economic power that poses not just a, uh, a you know, a, 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 an economic competitor, but a perhaps a, a peer military competitor uh, that we have not seen since the Soviet Union? And I frame it that way because it seems odd that if you think like, like that is the core issue here, that we spent a lot of time thinking about agriculture and 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 tariffs that may or may not have actually gone to this core issue yeah i i agree with that. i don't think they do uh we do spend a lot of time talking about the trade balance and tariffs affecting the trade balance because president trump is a kind of old school labor union protectionist in that way where he thinks if you have a lower trade balance you have more jobs that's not really true empirically uh and then within that we uh i think republicans and conservatives talk more about agriculture because farmers are part of the Republican base. We don't talk as much about tech because tech is really thought to be more on the Democratic side. Tech is a big you know, export issue for the United States. Should we export more technology? Um, will the Chinese buy it and so on? Will they steal it? Um, when you look at China comprehensively, to me, the number one issue is it, they're, they're run by a cult of personality dictator. Like you're not allowed to like make, say he looks funny. You're not allowed to like parody him. You're not allowed to, you know, it's, it's, it's ugly. Um, and he doesn't intend to ever leave office until he's dead. So that's a big problem for us across the board. And when people say we might go to war with, with China over Taiwan, they're not saying that ordinary Chinese people are screaming for war. They're saying, I don't trust the, the dictator in charge for good reason. That's much more than ag. It affects ag. It's like, can you rely on this guy to buy American farm products? No. It affects all of our exports to China. If we're selling them advanced technology, what is it going to be used for? If we're supplying them with, with energy or, or, uh, or money, is that going to be used to increase Communist Party repression and, and eventually turn against the United States? But I, I don't, you know, trade, by, goods trade, the bilateral trade balance, that's something to talk about. Agriculture, China's the biggest buyer in the world, something to talk about. It's well, for small those, There was a period of time where that, I mean, if you're mm-hmm. going to talk about uh, U.S.-China relations, you were talking about this trade deal, mm-hmm. lot, which it seemed to me to be a grand sort of distraction. Yes, uh, from all this other stuff going on that you know that I think even a- average people are, you know are sort of 
No, China seems to be emerging tech power. That means that if you're and if you're the leading tech power and you have an economy as big as the United States, even if you're poor per person and you have great technology, oh, and you're and you're ruled by the Communist Party, that seems like a big concern, even more so than you know whether whether or not they're buying you know uh, as much grain or soybeans right. as they used to. Uh, I, I, of course, you're right. To be fair to President Trump. He has been a trade balance protectionist, is what I call the labor union types who think if the trade deficit shrinks, we get more jobs. He's been a trade balance protectionist his whole political life. This, back in the 70s, you can find quotes from him. This is not a change from him. He didn't, like, morph when he started running for president in 2016. But he, he was focused on this his whole presidency with China. Like, if you look at all the other things he did, they're all soft on China. You know, you would say, what a, what a dove. Like, he, we had some Chinese firms break U.S. law with regard to Iran. Like, oh, let them off. You know, it's all focused on reduce the trade deficit. And so we ended up talking about that a lot because the president of the United States talked about it a lot. It's not that important. And the, the technology side is important because it's both an economic challenge to the U.S. and it's a military threat to the U.S. So if you had to pick a sector, without saying agriculture, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Um, high tech matters more than agriculture. Uh, it seemed that dur- during the Cold War, we spent a lot of time thinking about the Soviet Union. You know, think tanks, you know, th- think tanks had a whole <laughs> many, many Soviet analysts in government, out government. And that was th- that occupied a lot, you know, our foreign policy bandwidth. Are we at the same point thinking about China like that hard and coming up with, you know, sort of, you know, new geopolitical approaches? It doesn't seem that we don't, I don't I mean, obviously, you're way closer to it than I am, but are we at that point yet? I think about China all the time, so obviously (laughs) we are. No, I don't think we are, and there's a very clear reason why not. We are Versus thinking about the Soviet Union, we were thinking about the Soviet Union as a competitor, a rival, a threat. We think about China that way, but a lot of our resources and attention and bandwidth goes to thinking about how to make money off China. So there are a lot of China experts around, but a lot of them are in New York, not here. And they're not thinking about this the same way the think tankers do or the same way that we used to think about the Soviet Union. They're thinking about how do I gather money to invest in China? Where can I invest it? What can I, you know, where can, where can well, it be Well, it's like they're forever stuck in 2000. Yes. Right? So, exactly. I mean, how can, but how can that, how can that be given that the country, you know, economically seems to become, you know, l- less open? Uh, they certainly are, are, are talking more bellicose, building up the military, and they don't seem to be moving toward a liberal democracy at all. I, look, I agree with you 100%. I think what happened is the U.S. has, has, has a at least political or even maybe we should call it psychological dependence on China. Um, the, 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 the economic relationship has clearly gotten worse compared to the 90s when we negotiated China's WTO accession. Not that it's smaller, but the trend in China was much better then. And the, the writing is very clear on the wall. And even some of these firms, tech firms, finance firms, et cetera, see that it's on the wall, but they're kind of addicted. You know, when Apple says, we'd really like to be less dependent on China, they, they realize they have a problem. But then, you, well, what are you doing? And there's not, there's not a lot there. And now we have U.S. financial firms saying the same thing. Oh, you know, we need to be able to freely invest in China or we're doomed. I'm like, well, you didn't freely invest in China 10 years ago. You weren't doomed then. Um, so there's a, there's an addiction problem. It's, it, China's big and it's convenient in a lot of ways. Um, and we're we're stuck on that. It's taking us a long time to disentangle ourselves enough to get a clear view of the situation. So has the disentanglement process begun and how far does that go? Uh, it's certainly begun in words. Um, when I started talking about decoupling eight, 
years ago or whatever it was, people just said you're nuts. Now people use that terminology all the time. In action, it really hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, people were reporting, and we're about to get these numbers, and we even get them today, that the U.S.-China you know, trade relationship, goods trade relationship in 2022 will be the second largest on record. Um, we don't have recent investment data, but U.S. securities investment buying Chinese stocks and bonds soared during the Trump administration. Remember that that was supposed to be during the trade war, where financially there was much more U.S. money flowing into China at that time. So we really haven't decoupled, except we're starting to do it in technology, which is the place to start, because there are some military implications of that technology. So we're, we're starting to say, I really don't want to be sharing advanced tech with China. And of course, the tech firms are pushing back because it's their money on the line. In other areas, we're not. Uh, why, should it, why should it be in other areas, other, other than just making sure they don't have advanced uh, tech which can be used for the military? Other than that... Why, why do we why why not continue to try to make money off China? What what what, you know, what is the the thesis that there needs to be a more uh, significant economic decoupling? So this is a this is a really good point. I think one way we could say is like we're going to argue over what's the core of our national security. There was a meeting in this building with U.S. government officials a couple of days ago where we were arguing about that. Okay, but but whatever we decide at any particular time, like I don't think high capacity batteries are part of national security, but some people in the Biden administration do. That's we shouldn't be sharing that with China, right? Okay, so fine. So that's one approach, and it's a, it's a good approach. And, and to your question, okay, that now we're done. Two reasons why I mean we not be done: one economic and one and one political moral. The economic reason is reciprocity. Reciprocity seems like a good thing. So, like when we're arguing over how to handle TikTok, there's the purely U.S. argument to be had: what's best for us? How should we do it? Should we tie up resources trying to enforce rules on TikTok? Why are we doing that? But then there's the reciprocity argument. There could never be a U.S. application in China that operates the way TikTok does here. There is no I, – I would be six foot eight and 20 years younger than I am before that happens. Um, so I'm not six foot eight, by the way. I know you can't see me. And we can't go back. <laughs> um, as a side note, yes. Yeah. Um, so, like, the reciprocity argument is how are you going to get the Chinese to behave as a better partner if you never say you can't do all the things you want to do and stop us from doing things? Uh, and then the political moral argument is we're we're bolstering a cult of personality dictator running a you know a brutal dictatorship and the Communist Party and maybe we don't want to do that or maybe we don't want to do it as much. I wouldn't say like that's like okay that's it you should never deal with China. Uh, for, for one thing, in some of these some of these deals we 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 do better than them, so that's fine. I also think like okay I, we're sort of helping the party by buying Chinese toys, but but really. But when you're sending money to Chinese surveillance firms, which U.S. companies do because they're very profitable in China, it's a big business of surveillance, that seems like maybe we shouldn't do that. So in addition to the national security argument, there's a how are we going to get a better partner out of this if we just say, okay, it doesn't matter what they do. And then there's the moral argument that this is a, this is a bad country right now. It'll be better, I hope, when Xi Jinping is gone. But right now, it's not a good partner. Some would say that the, that the biggest concern is that this – Due to uh, there are there are rising global power, there's conflicts uh, over over Taiwan. That the biggest threat to peace and prosperity is war between the U.S. and China, and the, and there's nothing more important than avoiding that. And therefore, rather than decouple, we should hug them closer. We should more intertwine these economies. So it's just utterly unimaginable to have any kind of major conflict or peace. I think there are people saying that. Why? Why? And why is that not a yeah? Right I way mean, to go? whenever I run into a libertarian at an AI event, they say things like that, and I, I turn red and steam comes out of my ears. <laughs> um, 
you know, we tried that is the answer to that question. We, we did, we, be, you know, we, we from, let's say, let's, let's cut out Tiananmen, not because it's, oh, we shouldn't talk about it, but because it, it's, a, it's a big exception to this. But from, say, 1993 um, until 2015, so 20 years, you know, a good 20 years, we tried to get closer and closer to China and be friendlier and friendlier. They didn't get better. They didn't get better as a political entity. They didn't get less aggressive. They didn't get better as an economic partner. That's not what happened. So we tried to make things better. We tried to reduce the probability of conflict, and their behavior didn't improve. So there's the just it didn't work side. But the other side of this is, you know, is, is Xi Jinping specific. When you have somebody who wants to stay in power, who explicitly wants to make China great, who says things like we need the rest of the world to depend more on China so we can have leverage over them, it's not at all clear to me that you discourage conflict by, by accommodating that, that you can give Xi Jinping a big hug and he'll be happy. Um, so we've tried this in China. It hasn't worked. And in particular, right now, the leadership looks very difficult to try to ensure they're friendly. with. If Xi Jinping thinks he's going to lose power, which means he's dead, by the way, and the only way to keep it is forceful unification with Taiwan, it isn't going to matter what the trade relationship with the U.S. is like. Just to jump back uh, toward decoupling, what, what, is the, what does that mean, you think, realistically in practice? Not today, but, it, but you know, 10 years from now, does that mean – Apple doesn't make anything in China. Is that what that means? What, what, what does full decoupling means as you define it? So I don't think we would – I wouldn't try to strive for full decoupling. As I was saying earlier, if we're buying a Chinese toy or buying Chinese shirts or whatever, that doesn't matter. Uh, what I would look for is, is to say where is our, our national interest, not just national security but including national, national security, where is it really high? So obviously technology that the PLA can use. We don't want to provide technology that the Chinese use to suppress their own people or to give it to other dictators around the world. We've done that. We've given them technology to help their missile capability. We've given their technology to help their, their data collection uh, capability. So we should stop doing that. And then the other one, which is more econ, is supply chains. And do you really want to rely on China for pharmaceuticals, that seems like a bad idea in general. It's not that easy to fix. It's not like, okay, snap your fingers. So there's a challenge there. But there are some products that I would consider to be crucial products for the United States. We don't want to rely on China, just in an economic sense. Oh, and do we rely want to rely on crucial products that perhaps aren't made in China, but are made, you know, very close to China? Mm-hmm. That, that, that you know that may, may in a place that could eventually become part of China, right? So uh, microchips, right? So that's that's the time. And, and would it be okay for you if, if they, do they need to be made in America or if they, could they be made in I don't know Vietnam or something? Would it matter? Uh, I, I I don't think they. First of all, we can't reshore everything. We don't have the labor force for it, right? I mean, we just we don't have the quantity of labor. We don't have the quality of labor. I wish we did. We don't. We can reshore some things, train people up, you know, push wages up in those areas to draw people in, but we can't reshore everything. I don't think, you know, to, to, to your point, if we had an unfriendly country right nearby for nearshoring, I would prefer the friendly country far away. Um, I, I want a good partner. That's not China. Um, it may or may not be Vietnam. It certainly is Australia, you know, even though Australia is far away. Um, there are plenty of countries in Europe uh, that are good partners, even though they're not particularly close. So I would not try to reshore. I wouldn't try to friendshore uh, nearshore because I don't think it makes that much sense. I would friendshore. I would say, look, we started the global system dealing with our friends. We didn't start by saying, come one, come all. We started with, let's, let's have a deal with Europe, um, the global economic system after the war. We should go back in that direction and, and try to be dependent on, on countries that we can count on. 
um, because the way people are talking about semiconductors, microchips, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's it's sort of the way that you talk about, about oil. Like this is the, you know, this is the thing, the commodity in which the modern economy runs. So would you expect that, again, 10 years from now that, Taiwan will still be the the world's you know microchip advanced microchip hub. I and, and if it is, is that a failure? And I, assuming that the Chinese right. government hasn't taken a liberal democratic right. turn, which seems unlikely. Right. Yes, um, I do think that's a failure. Uh, I think we got too much into the cheap. You know, there are a lot of advantage of global supply chains: cheaper goods, faster, high quality. But if semiconductors are the heart of everything and semiconductors are the heart of not only regular computing, they're in your car, they're in quantum computing, they're, they power AI applications. So I think there's a good case for semiconductors being like oil. And if that's the case, we didn't want to depend on Saudi Arabia. We don't want to depend on Russia now and oil. Learn the lesson. Don't depend on a country. Now, a little complicating factor is, you know, there's a supply chain in semiconductors. It's not just, oh, we make the most advanced semiconductors in the world in the U.S., but we need somebody else to make them. It's a bigger challenge than just locating manufacturing here. Like members of Congress, members of the administration, those going to pat themselves on the back. We opened a new big semiconductor plant. Well, like, where did the materials come from? Where's the testing and packaging occurring? So it's a big challenge to the U.S. I don't think we should do everything here, but we need to make sure we're not dependent on one country, especially one close to China, or even just a couple of countries. And that's the same thing we thought about oil, and it was the right it was the right response, and we ended up – we moved ourselves off of oil dependence. We can do the same thing with chips. What is the state of the Chinese economy as far as productivity growth? Boy, we're just, we're just reading that they, had, that they hit a peak in population. I think it, was, it wasn't just working age, right? right. I think they hit a peak in population. So if, if, if you're not producing people, someone's got to do the work, and that's, that's going to that's be machines. Uh, it's going to be you know, making more capital per worker, making them more productive – so it seems to me if you're going to judge the Chinese economy going forward, you have to judge productivity growth. How is that doing? Well, first of all, there's a big data problem, right? Because if you use official data, there are some funky changes, like their benchmark investment indicator. They just took a couple trillion dollars off of it a couple of years ago, it just disappeared, and GDP didn't change at all. So they're like, okay, investment is $2 trillion smaller than you thought it was, but GDP is the same. Okay, that's a little bit difficult to deal with. So we have a data problem. Um, it looks like productivity growth is quite slow. It's at the like supporting maybe a three to four percent GDP growth path. And there's, you know, people like, well, you know, China, you're underestimating China. I'm understanding China's potential, but it's not clear to me the Chinese government right now cares that much about productivity growth. That's not their top priority. Their top priority is political. It's making themselves invulnerable to foreign pressure economically, which means a lot of China has to buy energy overseas, metals, food, you name it. If you told them you're going to sacrifice productivity trying to make yourself less vulnerable to, to supply shutdowns, they'd say, fine, no problem. So their productivity growth is pretty slow. It could be faster. They're choosing not to make that the top priority. Can it be faster and also have a, a country that seems to be more authoritarian or more totalitarian than it was before. Can both those things happen where they where they where they can have this kind of looser, more open right. <laughs> economy and have this more repressive government? It seems like you're not uh, that you're not going to get both. I don't think they can. I think they can have a fairly repressive government and a looser, more open economy than they have now. That's kind of what they were doing in the 90s and the 2000s. I don't think they can have this level of repression 
and have a more open economy and a more productive economy. They want to control too much stuff. They want to control all communication sectors because, you know, if you can communicate and the party doesn't know about it, then you can plan against the party, just as an example. So, and food has always been under their control and heavy industry is, is for both the military and for employment absorption. So I don't think so. I think this level of dictatorship is incompatible with economic, you know, an economic jump. You can creep along, it's fine, but it's incompatible with an economic jump and it won't change until they have a change in government. Um, we're talking about maybe they have productivity growth that could uh, support a three or uh, three or four percent GDP growth. Let me read your uh, a quote from a, uh, a think tank. It's not, it's not our think tank. Someone else's think tank. Uh, and they're talking about what if what instead of being a fast growing five percent country, what if they're only two or three? What would be the difference? And the quote goes, if China were only grow around two to three percent a year, then the country's future looks very different. It would still likely become the world's largest economy but it would never establish a meaningful lead over the United States and would remain far less prosperous and productive per person than America, even by mid-century. So you'd be looking at, if, that, if, if you agree with that, then a 3% China economy and a 5% China economy by mid-century, you're looking at a very different world, are you? I mean, it seems like two percentage points, who really cares? But it wouldn't make a big difference. It would make, well, two percentage points doesn't really matter this year, especially you think if you're going to have a recovery next year. But if you compound it over 20 or 25 years, it absolutely matters. And actually, that that that's a fair point. They might be being a little too positive because as our colleague Nick Eberstadt has pointed out many times, and I do too, but uh, mostly following Nick's lead on this, Chinese demographics are going to get really bad. In 2050, we're going to think 3% Chinese GDP growth. Wow, that was fantastic back when we had it because they're not going to have it anymore. So not only are you getting to a point where in 20 years, 3% versus 5% creates a big difference. In 20 years, 3% is, is not going to be possible for them. Uh, they may report that, but it won't actually be true. You can't have your population shrink as much as China's population is going to shrink and maintain absolute GDP growth. Uh, so your three to five point decoupling plan is what? Huh. Uh, that's a that's a good question. I, I think the, the the starting point one from, ban TikTok. <laughs> no, that's not that. And TikTok and Huawei are not my prime targets. Two uh, ban Huawei <laughs> is and, and we took a step towards this in the Congress, but the bill didn't pass. Identify and the Biden administration is thinking about it too. Identify the top sectors where you think we can't depend on the Chinese. So semiconductors, pharma. Some people would say clean energy. Some people would say critical materials. You know, like rare earths. And just say, look, you, the Chinese can't participate in these supply chains. We're not talking about all the other supply chains. Just in these, we, we, we can't have them participating in any meaningful way. Second, um, you know, I have a set, which the Biden administration started to do in October, took one step, but we need to take more steps, a set of export controls where we tell everyone this is going to change over time, but these are the technologies we're not sharing with China because we don't want the PLA to get access to them. And the world has to cooperate with this. We're not going to have a giant set. It's not going to be 50 technologies. It's going to be five but the five might shift in five years, and you need to come along with us because this is they're scary. Right? We're, we're not going to have American servicemen and women die because you've transferred these technologies to the, to the Chinese. The third one, this might be the hardest one, is start enforcing our own intellectual property laws. We have all these estimates of how much intellectual property China has stolen from the United States, and I think some of them are exaggerated, but it's still tens of billions of dollars per year. We've never seriously punished a Chinese firm. We, we arrest people or we issue arrest warrants for people who are in China, we never punish a Chinese firm. So why would they stop? Um, so th that those would be my top three. A fourth one is being discussed right now is money flow. Um, you know, do you want U.S. money flowing into 
repression? Do we want it flowing into military enterprises? Do we want to help China with our advanced technology development? No, we don't. So that would be a fourth pillar. So, so if you go through those, it's supply chains, export controls, outbound investment, and IP. Finally, should we ban TikTok? <laughs> and do you think we are going to um, finally get Gen Z really into politics? Right. right? I have two teenage daughters. Uh, I hope they're not listening. <laughs> I, I think on balance, we probably should. I would be okay with extending the effort to say, all right, we'll manage your data by a U.S. firm and you can continue to operate here. The problem is, like, why are we doing that? Why are we spending government resources and taxpayer dollars and staff to be nice to TikTok when there's no reciprocity here. If someone m- wants to make a case and say, look, we can get something else from the Chinese if we're nice to TikTok or we get, okay, fine. I- I'm willing to change that, to-, to-, to change my mind on that. But my inclination is we have so little access to their market in this area. We, we shouldn't be contorting ourselves to try to let TikTok operate here. Um, it's not a priority for me. And if somebody said, I'd rather go the data management route where we control the data, I'd say, okay. Will I be able to log into TikTok in 2025 or will America not be able to? I think you will be. I think the two the two possibilities of we're not going to do anything or we're going to just control the data and let TikTok operate are, are more likely than a ban. Eric, thanks for coming back to the podcast. It was fantastic. Thank you. I enjoyed it.